HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The following program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery. Kane Vineyard and Winery supports Heritage Radio and the growing movement to change how Americans eat and how we think about our planet. For more information, visit www.kane5.com. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, here on Heritage Radio Network. And today I have with me uh, somebody from who came all the way from England. My goodness, yes. <laughs> um, England has been very much in our minds in the news with, with the royal wedding and all. But uh, my guest today is has been focused on something entirely different. My guest is Mark Meltonville, and I also have with him Catherine McGowan. Uh, Mark is a food archaeologist and historian and with a specialty in, in the history of ceramics. And Mark was an integral part of the team who, I guess you say, renovated, recreated, restored the kitchens at Hampton Court. And those were the kitchens of Henry VIII. And Catherine is a culinary historian and a blogger with her blog site, which is comestibles.com. And uh, Hampton Court, for those of you, if you have not uh, caught any of the press about this, Mark's going to tell us exactly where it is, but it's one of the royal courts. It was the royal, it was the royal court. And it, wa- it basically it has been called a living monument. The kitchens that have been restored now have been called a living monument to 230 years of royal cooking and entertainment. They were constructed in 1530. And the royal family's last visit to that palace was in 1737. And the kitchens were a central part of that life. And, Mark, what I want to know from you is how did this idea come about to restore these kitchens and how did it get started? Hi there. Um, I think it was really a case of being very, very lucky. People... if you know Hampton Court, if you've been watching the Tudors, you've got some idea of where I mean. Oh, that's what I forgot to mention. Yes, it's, it's very much in our minds with, the, with those television series. You yes. know what the place looks like. Well, you know what the place looks like upstairs. Mm-hmm. And if you take away the word palace and say big hotel, that's actually what we are. It was a huge hotel that the royal family and the whole of the government lived in. So wherever the king went, the whole of England was being run from there. And Hampton Court was one of those palaces that they could go to which means you have 600 people 
living and working in one space. And eating. And eating. That's <laughs> the important thing because, of course, food is part of pomp and ceremony. And so you need a massive kitchens. The other palaces have all gone. You said we are the, the Tudor Royal Palace, yes. We're the last surviving Renaissance kitchen of any size left in Europe. So all the more important that, mm. that this project uh, came about. Now, how did it come about? How did the... Our palace has been open a long time. It opened to the public in 1861. So, so it's we, more like a museum <laughs> than... Both, really, because we still have a residency. It's never stopped being lived in. We mm. have people who live there. No royal anymore, but we have people who live there. As an open space, over the years, people have been able to walk around. It's been very dead and very empty. And very luckily for us, no one changed the kitchens. I think they were too big. So they, they put apartments in other places, but they didn't bother with the kitchens. They left them as storerooms. So they were never updated, in no. other words. Yeah. When the, uh, the last cooks left in the 1730s, someone shut the door and said, well, we'll use that as a storeroom later. Well, uh, we're talking about a lot of space. <laughs> we're we're talking of, of one third of the ground floor of a palace that has six acres of indoors. Good heavens. Over a thousand rooms within that palace. So we're, we're talking about a big space. They were open to the public in the 70s and 80s, just as, you know, like you'd visit a castle. You can walk around, there's nothing much there, it's difficult to understand. Luckily for us, a very creative curator in the early 90s looked at this and thought, I think there's more interest in below-stairs life than people think. No one wants well, to... upstairs, downstairs certainly yeah. had a little to do with that. <laughs> it is. People, people can connect with food. They can connect with the cooking of food in a way that doesn't always work upstairs. If I show you where a king lived and a king dined, it's really good, but you would never have done this. Right. If I take you down to the kitchens and explain the things they ate, you can automatically have an opinion. I like this. I would not have liked this. You can connect and we can start talking. So he had the kitchens renovated and they proved very, very popular. Luckily for me, one of the lead guys doing the, the food work was asked at the opening... Oh, now we have the biggest kitchen left in Europe all renovated. Wouldn't it be kind of cool to cook in here? Mm. And uh, he said, yeah, yeah, I, I, I can sort that out. The guy's now retired, which is why I'm sat here. <laughs> and uh, he said, I can't do it on my own. I, I need some guys to help me. You, you, can't, you can't cook Tudor food alone. And uh, myself and a couple of others that are still on the team had worked on some of the small items. I think I made a tinderbox for lighting fires. And so received this phone call out of the blue saying, Mark, would you like to cook Tudor food? And I said, no. And I've been there ever since. <laughs> Don't try to refuse an order from the royal court, right? <laughs> I think that was the problem. It was sort of, oh, it'll only be once and it'll be kind of cool and you can have a go at it. And, you know, have you ever roasted loads of meat in the fire? And you sort of be, you get tempted. I was always interested in, in food. I've enjoyed food. My mother was a very good cook. And I thought, yeah, this, this sounds like... a Okay, okay, I'll, I'll, if it's just the one. Well, with a background in, in the history and, and analysis of ceramics, mm. um, that, that makes you sort of kind of close to cooking. But Yeah, a lot of food goes in the pots, but you never see it. So it mm. would have been quite nice. I thought, let's put some food back in the pots. Well, and that proved, your, your background obviously proved very, very useful mm. and, and very important to uh, recreating not only the recipes, but the actual implements and, and the mm. cookware and how to set up this Tudor kitchen. Yeah, because right? we did these this one-off event <laughs> several times over a few years, and then it got to um, 2005, 2006 we opened. The, uh, the gentleman involved in helping the kitchen retired to write books, and we reached one of those crossroads you get in a project. 
do you want to continue having a good time doing quite small-scale cooking projects, or do you think there's more in this? And the public interest had been fantastic. Mm. People enjoyed not just the idea of the kitchen and cookery, but seeing it done live in front of them, being able to um, interact with the cooks and say, why are you doing it that way? Do you think you should do something else? Using their experience to help us along. So learning from their questions. You know. Yeah, both, completely both ways. Well, Catherine, you had the opportunity to go and actually see a cooking, the co- live cooking in action. Right? Well, actually, I, I unfortunately didn't get to see them cook. Oh, But okay. I did get... Why are you here? No. <laughs> I, I did spend a lovely day with Mark at, at Hampton Court, and he showed us around and uh, explained a lot about how he created... The, you know how he had to do all this research to create, for example, a mixing bowl, mm-hmm. and find you know a potter who could then make a mixing bowl that in the way that it was made in the 16th century, and it's just fascinating. So, in order to cook, to really cook the way the Tudors mm-hmm. cooked, you wanted to go back and actually use the exact same implements, like how, like a spoon. Tell us a little bit about we, that, about how we, how you recreated the recipes <laughs> by going to the implements first. Yeah. We realized that. The, the team of guys that we have, and they're, they're quite eclectic. There's a dozen of us with all sorts of different backgrounds, uh, quite a lot of them craftsmen. So we do have a cook, but we have a blacksmith and a carpenter and so on. So they've all got their, their practical experiences. Uh, one marine biologist, I don't know why he's there, um, <laughs> <laughs> but he's good. Like the uh, guilds in the old days, you all came from a different <laughs> guild. Right. And um, we, once we got involved, we realised there's quite a lot of food historians around, and they're focusing on the finished dish, which Mm -hmm. is really good because you get to eat it. (laughs) But we're as much interested in the process from raw ingredient to that dish. So that involves the equipment. We were lucky enough to have, as we said, an original kitchen. The room I'm standing in when I'm at work did cook the food for the court of Henry VIII. We will be 500 years old in four years' time. The fireplace I work in has the same ironwork that they had had. Amazing. But everything else was missing. So we realised that was our interest. If I use a plastic bowl and aluminum saucepan, I will get good food. And I encourage anyone listening to have a go at some Tudor recipes. But what I wanted to know was, does it affect the way you cook? Does it affect the outcome if you return to the right equipment? We couldn't use antiques for two reasons. One, you will destroy a, uh, a precious rare thing, a rare thing <laughs> because it's only survived in a small, small scale. And they didn't. When they moved into this palace, they had a new kitchen, new furniture, new pots, bowls, spoons. That antique bowl was actually new, brand new. (laughs) So, as you said, for me, I had to look at a mixing bowl. Now, what's it made of? It's made of clay. It's got a lead glaze on it. It's a sort of green colour for the part of Britain that we're in. Can someone make that? Does its fragility affect the way you mix? Do you do things differently? Well... Partly it does. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, um, and that was the way. That's yeah. the route we're looking for. Does the, the the pewter spoon or the knife that's made of iron, not stainless steel, the sycamore chopping board? I can go on and on. Each piece is a part of that story, and sometimes changes the way you work. And there have been a few justifications. I think is the right <laughs> word for what I do. Um, little revelation moments. Uh, people used to heritage cooking and uh, hearth cookery might be um, familiar with flesh hooks an iron mm-hmm. implement made by a blacksmith to hook food. You don't really need one in a modern kitchen if you're following recipes. You take a five-gallon bronze cauldron that weighs too much to lift empty and fill it with stew, 
you can't get you can't, you can't lift it, lift it right. so you use the hook to take the meat out first then you scoop the juice then you can move the pot and the objects start to come out back into place now i i did see a picture i mean I, and i posted i will see if we can get that up on our our um, page for the show um, I posted a couple of photographs of the kitchen, or the main room of the kitchen, with that huge fireplace and all the racks for the spit roasting. That is quite impressive. That's a huge fireplace. That's my spot at the moment. That's where I've been. That's working where you for are. The, I, I'm sat there turning that handle. And you could you could roast an entire cow in that. You right? could do. And again, this is this is bringing the place to life. Um, I was there only two weeks ago, turning two handles actually, because I was doing some pork as well. And the good Lord gave us two hands, so why leave me <laughs> leave with nothing? Can you to listen do? to an iPod while you're doing that? <laughs> um, no, I have to listen really hard to see if I can hear the music up in the Great Hall. That's the closest uh-huh. it gets. Um, <laughs> but people walk up and say, "Gee, you could do a pick on here, didn't they used to?" And it's another dialogue. No, they didn't. This is a hotel production kitchen. They cut all the meat up into regular joints so that everything cooked evenly. So they would have. 18 roasts of, of leg of lamb or whatever mm-hmm. going at one time rather yep. than the whole animal. And the next bit might have another cut of lamb or pork or mutton. So it really was more refined mm-hmm. spit roasting. It was You'd only put an animal on a spit if someone's watching. So you go out to a fair, mm. which is unfortunately where you see all the illustrations, and you put an ox roast up or a hog roast. When you're doing it for production for two meals a day on time... Two meals a day for 600 people each. each you right. cut everything up into virtually... Uh, they're usually in double portions. They're usually enough for two tables at a time. So it comes straight off the spit, cut in half, gone to the service, and out through. We have hatches that any modern cook would go, that's your pass. I understand that. Yeah. So oh, it's, it's all the same. Yeah. And then it would be speedy, you know, expediters would run it upstairs and put it on the table. Yeah. It, on ordinary days, it looks like you're, you, you have 600 people. Our hall will take about 300. It's beginning to look as if those that aren't dining at this sitting serve the ones that are. Hmm. So one group go and sit down, another group go and get their food, serve them. The guys that eat, then I think your term would is bust their own tables, <laughs> take it the, the cafeteria <laughs> style, huh? take it all down, <laughs> and then they collect the food for the next lot who sat there. So it's um, for a lot of English people, it, it's very much like a school meal used to be. Yeah, that's why the cafeteria. Mm, for us, we yeah. say cafeteria style, right? Um, now there has been mentioned, and and Catherine even um, brought it to my attention that. You even went so far as to research the clothing, what mm. the cooks would be wearing. Yeah. It, now, is this, did this become important, and, and was it just for show? What, what was the purpose of that? Um, good question. Uh, it was another of those no thank yous. We built this kitchen. Our carpenters worked on air-dried English oak furniture. Our knife maker was forging out these, these iron knives. Everything is Gorgeous done. tables. The tables beautiful, are beautiful. Fantastic. And uh, you may have seen the... We've got one that is too big to move it's been there about 350 years Mm. it's a huge piece of english elm it's lovely but uh, that's an old one but we have others that are a little newer as well as we were finishing this question of dressing up started to arise should you dress up and of course the guys who treat their work very seriously are going well not really because if we wear nice sweatshirt saying hi i'm a cook ask me um that's that'll work fine and the more you talked about it the more you realised you were pushing one more tool to one side because the clothes that we're all wearing today, if you're at work today, are a tool of your work. If you're a builder and you've got that belt on with all mm-hmm. these hammers and so on or the hard hat or if you're a chef with your whites, they're part of your job. 
So perhaps the clothes would affect the way you interact with the space, the way you move, the way... Can you do some things in a pair of hose, which are basically men's tights? Yeah. It does affect the way you, you bend down and everything. So a clothing project, which is entirely separate set of research, was, was born so that the, uh, the clothes were done by having the cloth dyed using the same recipes as the time, so another set of recipes to, to uh, dissect, hand-sewn together for each individual using the same threads, the same everything. So, yes, from, from table to shoe buckle everything we have has been recreated using the same Uh, very interesting um when you uh when we talk about of course the popularity of these kitchens you know through henry the eighth who loved to eat a lot of food and uh have a lot of women you know but he i mean these how often would he he would never have come down to these kitchen number one um and you what i was found interesting is that one of the comments on the site said that the food at that time was very pan-European. Mm. Well, of course, marriages between country leaders was very important politically, so obviously the food traveled with them, I would imagine. How was sourcing sourcing a lot of, at that time, I mean, now we can get, we have shops, we can get anything we want from any country, pretty much, um, with airfare and travel, but how was sour- sourcing must have been very difficult in that time for some of these products? Yeah, um, the food seems to be pan-European for exactly the same reason as we go to high-end restaurants today. Everything is about what can you have that ordinary folks ah, can't. Ah, a show of wealth. show of mm-hmm. wealth. So, yes, the food in Henry's palaces was the best of British, and they served a lot of beef and mutton because that was very, very good and, and well-liked. But at the same time, if you have visitors from abroad, you can't miss out all the things that they think of as good. Otherwise, they... They, go, they leave Britain and say, yeah, it's just some rock off Calais. It's nothing special at all. Hmm. So they have to have the citrus fruits, the almonds, the dates, everything from around the world that shows not only the best of your culture, but that you have the money to gather it. We talk about food miles nowadays. Very important carbon, in the past. Carbon oh, footprint, no, no, they're yes. very important in the past. The further, the better. Hmm. Remember, the ships are green. They're all, they're all yeah. powered by the wind, so that's okay. That was all right. So if you of course, can, they might have been spoiled by the time they arrived <laughs> at the other shore. They, but <laughs> it does mean that in our, um, in our work, a lot of the far Asian spices, we have to use dried, although we know they're better fresh. There was no way to get them fresh there. But, uh, yeah, if you're, if you're sat dining at the King's, um, King's Grace, he's given you a meal, and he's giving you fresh meat at a time of year when everybody else is eating preserved sausage mm. and things like that, you're thinking, yeah, this guy's really rich. He can kill a cow at the wrong time of year. You then think, he's roasting this. That's the least fuel-efficient way of cooking. You could boil it in a pot. Anyone can. He so must have forests galore yeah, to so cut King down, doesn't. Right? Even, yeah. even my small scale, you said it's quite a big fire. It's about 15 feet across with a nine-foot spit. I can get through a tonne of wood properly, not yeah. <laughs> a yeah, tonne of wood, ton of wood every, yeah. every, every weekend just cooking. So you've got all of that way. So you think, yeah, I've got roast beef, and it's, 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 uh, it's all fresh. And then next to it in a pot is a ginger sauce. Hmm. So your host is going, yeah, I've got guys on ships from China. And so it's all to do with showing off and having the best you can on your table. What's different? Very and, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Not any different today. Well, f- after um, the Tudor period, of course, then we move forward to other periods, and Elizabethan period mm-hmm. was one. Now talk about meat on the, spe- <laughs> the, the consumption of meat must have it, it seemed by the numbers that I was reading in the research <laughs> quadrupled in her time I'm yeah um, one of our problems in understanding what they ate is that all we have is the orders mm-hmm. like, like a restaurant if you, it's in fact identical to a restaurant if you have the chef's order book and the menu you know what they cooked 
but can you tell what any diner had? That's right. And that that is one of the main problems in, in the study of culinary history yeah. and, and food history. Um, we, we look at the records of the wealthy feasts, but what do we really know yeah. what they ate? You know? We know that everyone within a palace who was fed at the king's purse is given choice. Because we're back to that thing, what can't ordinary people have? Ordinary people cannot have a choice of food. Mm-hmm. They eat very much the same thing day same in, day gruel, out, day and seasonally day. Yeah. adjusted, depending on whether it's uh, there's more fish about or more rabbits, what greens are in season. So well, ma- you mentioned earlier um, the different, coming from other countries, you mentioned spices. So when we, mm-hmm. we're going to take a little break, um, and when we come back, I want to talk about some of those spices and some of the dedicated rooms for different activities, Good. as well as recipes. <laughs> is a message from HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Tune in to the main course this Sunday at noon with Patrick Martins and Katie Kiefer as they pay tribute to cheesemaker Igvella with Gary Edwards. Host a conversation with Mitchell Davis, the vice president of the James Beard Foundation, and invite four cooks from Union Square Cafe into the studio so you guys can learn how the back of the house makes it all happen in the dining room. Again, that's this Sunday at noon on the Heritage Radio Network. Hi there, we're back on A Taste of the Past, and I'm talking with Mark Miltonville and Catherine McGowan. We're talking about the Tudor kitchens, the kitchens of Henry VIII, and how they've been um, renovated, and in fact now cooking demos, and uh, Mark has been an integral part of that team, getting getting the recipes set and all the implements. And Mark, what I really wanted to, um, before we go on to some of the recipes, I wanted to give talk a little bit about the actual physical layout, the logistics of mm. the kitchen. You know, it is, you look at the, if you can find online, you look at a picture of where they are, and they're on the north side mm-hmm. of the palace, very dark, very cool. Yeah. Keep, everything keeps very cool, kind of dreary looking, too, <laughs> I might add. Um, but there are a lot of separate rooms, and they are all dedicated rooms. You mm. mentioned spices before we went to break. There is a room that is the spice room, yeah. correct? The kitchens are on the north side. They're about a third of the ground floor. Mm. Um, we argue over how many rooms there were. It's in the 50s, somewhere around 55 rooms. Uh, and we're missing an entire department called the Board of Offices. And that was a building that ran along the Thames, which had all the, housed all the big stuff. 
uh, bakeries because you don't want your palace burning down if that goes up. And that mm-hmm. had the wood yard, the poultry yard. Oh, so that would actually be separate from yeah, all the slaughterhouses, um, charcoal stores, um, kindling, everything. So there's a huge section missing. And then from there, the whole kitchen, the best way of describing it is to say food factory. Hmm. Food or raw ingredients came in through a back gate and were then either sent straight to a department to make, the pastry department, the confectionery, something like that, or they were put into stores. I've shown modern chefs around, and after about ten minutes, they start to say, I could use this, because you're stood around around the walk-ins. We have an entire corridor, runs east-west, the sun doesn't shine down there, uh, and it's full of stone rooms. And those are temporary stores to allow you to put fish, meat carcasses, uh, flour, pulses and so on, in there so that then the chefs from the different departments can come and get it, stock up and so on. We've had some thermometers in there and um, even even in our modern weather, and, and uh, sadly I, I've looked at 16th century weather patterns and we're a little hotter than it was then. They're still leave it, folks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're hotter here anyway. <laughs> the... Um, they're sitting at an acceptable level. Then they rarely go over the, the the levels that are allowed for a modern restaurant fridge. So they're pretty mm. good. The one we have problems with, and uh, haven't had a chance to find out why, is stormy weather. Stormy weather will will mess with our meat, unfortunately. Uh, is it humidity? You think yeah, humidity, hum- just, humidity yeah, it, and yeah. probably electricity in the air. Yeah, um, interesting. They, Fascinating. So they, they really, seem, they seem to be a cook's worst enemy is a stormy night because it can turn some of the joints of meat that you had. Well, I was also interested to um, to learn that, and it's something that if you look at old paintings and study um, in the different courts, one knows this, but uh, for our listeners, they may not. These courts w- were primarily self-sustainable, as uh, the meat was a lot of animals that were on the grounds, or in farm- well, they had farmed animals on the grounds. They're so? all farmed, but they're farmed far away. Uh, and they're oh, all, I thought all... they were farms on the grounds. Nah, okay. not this one. The gardens and the gardens, the gardens over there, the, garden, right? the gardens for perhaps, for, even for noblemen, is certainly true. And when you see the paintings, mm-hmm. they have the herds and the, the great. When you move kingly, when you move to a royal court, you move up a peg. Oh, you get that every, smell, the smelly animals out uh, of there. Well, huh? no, it's, it's all part of the showing off. You've just given your guests, sat in a dining hall, which contained tapestries that cost the same each as a battleship, <laughs> and in a room with a, a gold, ceil- gold uh, ceiling that looks like something out of Hogwarts nowadays, if you've seen those no. sorts of movies. And then you look outside the window, and there are no sheep and cattle. And the king's going, yeah, I've, I don't have to. I don't live on a farm. I'm the king. No, I've, got, I've got people to I've got bring people it to all do in. That, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so within, within, and they're also not staying at the palaces very long. They move, partly because there's 600 people are like locusts. So if you're bringing all the provisions in to feed them for a couple of weeks, the warehouses are going to start to empty. Mm. That you're bringing poultry, whatever, in from. So they need to move to the next palace, which a group of purveyors, the people that buy it all, they filled it up already, up, yeah. and then they move around like that. So it's very important to do that. Um, we had an apple orchard. They liked apple dishes. 600 people, that's going to strip acres. Yeah, <laughs> so no, yeah. the apple orchard was for walking in. For whichever girl the hmm. king was interested at that time, <laughs> you could walk along and pick an apple. And there um, were we did have herb gardens, because you do want those fresh, yes. and you can manage that. We had a deer park, which is still there. We still have the royal deer in the park. They're there for a little bit of sport that becomes a nice pie at the end of the day. <laughs> uh, we had stew ponds, which uh, I don't know if people are familiar with. That's for river fish. Oh. If you've ever eaten something like a pike or a carp, it can be really muddy. Mm-hmm. tasting it's not very nice if you put them in a pond with flowing water for clean a week them out and it a cleans bit, them out yeah. so they bring the live fish there and clean them for a week or so and we had a rabbit warren 
because rabbits were not yet wild in Britain. You had to keep them. Oh, interesting. Well, and then there was the wine cellar and the <laughs> ale cellar. Oh, yes, oh. we like that. I, I haven't done enough recreation of the wine cellar uh, by a long way. Well, I, I was astounded. <laughs> they said that, that in uh, how at 600,000 600, gallons of <laughs> ale would be consumed in a year? Most, Seems- most people in the court seem to get about a gallon a day. Is there a lot? That would be so, uh, yeah. Eight pints, mm, uh, you know, two meals plus any other time. I think it's all right. Doesn't sound too bad to me. Um, as one who works for Spitz a lot, but that's a lot. But that's a lot of air. I mean, that's that just a lot. lot physically, a lot of space. Oh, yes. oh, oh the, the barrels in there, they're hogsheads. They're huge. They're the size of a small car. Huh. Uh, yeah. As a Spit Turner, we don't have a limit on how much we can drink. They're one of the few departments where, because you're sat next to a fire, the embers of which can be running at eighteen hundred degrees. You got to keep I hydrated. Get, I, uh, yeah, my beer needs are insatiable. I can tell you. <laughs> but there were tales too about some uh, drunken brawls of those down in the kitchen. <laughs> Passing out and lying all over the it's, floors. But. You know, it's a staff of 200 guys that live and work together. What are you going to do? It gets a little messy. Huh? Okay. Um, so let's move on to recipes. And, mm-hmm. and I know, Catherine, you have done a lot of work in trying to recreate, um, not trying, but successfully doing, recreating a lot of um, old recipes as well. What were some, what for both, either of you, both of you, what were um, some of the greatest challenges that you faced in recreating recipe ingredients ingredients partly uh, and it's also things you don't think about you'll you'll be rattling through a recipe and think where am I going to get something like a a Javanese pepper a long tail pepper called a cubeb and then you find out that a spice shop in in London actually just does them in a jar we've we've got one too (laughs) exactly so that so that one you think oh what's that Oh, that turns out to be easy. And what and about it, yeah? What about interpretation of the, lang- of the, the, the you language? Know, the language as well. Language can be difficult. Although I, I don't, uh, I've been at it so long now. Mm-hmm. It's starting to to uh, to phase in that I can sit and read it in the way that you you might read a novel. Not always because we have regional variants in our English. The north or if and you've south, done any study of Milton or anything yeah. in the past, <laughs> you, you would you would come um, up to that. Meaning, I think the biggest difficulty is these books are not cookbooks. These are cooks' notes. So they are really eight. not instructions. No, they, they, don't, they don't expect me years later. They don't expect anyone then to cook from them. Mm-hmm. They are missing all of the amounts because they don't know how many you're cooking for. They're missing all the timings because how can they tell how hot your fire is? It always ends with the, what seems like the silly comment, and cook until done. Yeah. <laughs> but that's not silly. It is, you're a cook. You know when it's finished. Yeah. When it's done, serve it up because you know what you're doing. They are very much, anyone who's done culinary training, um, high-end stuff might be familiar with a book called The Repertoire de Cuisine, mm-hmm. which is about the size of a big postcard, under an inch thick, and has 5,000 recipes in it, because they are just notes for someone who can cook. Mm-hmm. They remind you what's in a certain sauce, but without telling you much. All these old recipes are like that. They seem to be the cook's aid memoir. So we realise then what we're missing is all the normal things. So a normal soup or stew, you don't write that down. The man doing my job, talking to you in 200 years' time on laser radio or whatever we have then. <laughs> uh, where's toast going to be? <laughs> yeah. Because who writes down toast? Because we all know how to do it. So that, that I realise that what we have is difficult and what we're missing is probably expansive. Hmm. Well, we have, I know, um, Catherine, you've done some work on, on some of these interesting dishes. Um, for a program that's happening tonight, as a matter of fact. That's you want to tell right. us about um, that? Yeah, Mark is going to be speaking for the uh, Culinary Historians of New York, 
And uh, so if listeners are interested in hearing more about what he's talking about here, and, and also you'll get a chance to taste some food. So that's kind of the fun part. It's tonight at 6.30, and it's at the Mount Vernon Hotel Museum and Garden, which is at 417 East 61st Street. So if you're interested in tickets for that, you can go to the Culinary Historians of New York website, which is www.culinaryhistoriansny.org. And uh, we've got some really interesting food that uh, we've, we've come that up you've with. That you've had a big hand in yeah, preparing. Yeah, I've been and, doing and some <laughs> cooking, and some friends and, and other members of, the, of the, um, the organization have been doing some cooking. We're going to have asparagus rolls, which are sort of like um, a French roll with some asparagus with and a cream a sauce into it stuffed and, inside. Mm, yeah, yeah. Right, come along. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then um, we're going to have, uh, I made a, a, a white hippocras, which is um, spiced wine. It's wine with that. spice and sugar in it, and uh, and a white one, which I didn't even know they did white ones, but mm. it turns out they do. So I tried that. <laughs> so there will be food and drink, and yes. that's uh, that. Today is uh, June sixteenth. Yes, um, at six thirty. Six thirty. Well, before we go, I'm sorry we have run out of time now, and there's so much to talk about in this period. I do want to alert people that they can find out more about the recipes. They can actually see cooking demos, and they can see that online. Yeah, um, our master cook, who's a lovely lad named Robin, who does, uh, he's a dab hand with pastry. Um, He's done some cook-along videos, so if you go to TudorCookery.com, not only can you download three recipes that will give you a taste of the past, we've we've picked three that, although they didn't eat like us, it'll give you a starter, an entree, and a sweet. And if they're a bit confusing, you get a video of Robin cooking there, so he'll show you how to do it. And that's all part of the Hampton Royal mm. Palace site, so you can continue searching that site and, and see pictures of the yeah. kitchens and and really interesting information. And I'm so happy that this project was completed, and I, I think it's it's a, a wonderful attraction for people and a, a really great way to give them a, a, a piece of history and a taste of the past. Thanks so much for listening. This has been A Taste of the Past, and I'm Linda Palaccio. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. This is Behind the Scenes Food News with Katie Kiefer. This week in MeetingPlace.com, A report prepared by 10 international agencies for next week's Group of 20 conference in Paris is recommending that major governments drop policies supporting biofuels because of the effect they have on global food prices. The report was generated by experts from groups such as the World Trade Organization, the World Bank, and the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization. It notes that abrupt changes in the price of oil can lead to crops diverted to produce biofuels, which in turn increases food price volatility. It recommended that government subsidies that support biofuel development be abandoned, a topic that U.S. Agriculture Secretary Thomas Vilsack is expected to address on some level when he meets with the G20 
on June 23rd. In an address yesterday before the National Press Club, Vilsack said he believes that corn-based ethanol doesn't deserve the bad reputation it received in recent years with regard to rising food prices, saying that biofuels played a minor role in food price increases in 2008. We diverted 40% of our national corn crop into the ethanol program this past year. It has had an indisputable effect on farmers who have seen their corn prices rise for feed for their cattle and pork and chickens, something like 50 to 60 percent over the last year. This, in turn, has had a major impact on the consumer and grocery stores. This has been Behind the Scenes News with Katie Kiefer. Check out a small clip of Chef Smarty Pants, a.k.a. Erica Wides, talking about radishes on her show, Why We Cook. Those supermarket radishes were like that. They were all heat and no flavor and woody and tough, and they were always kind of beat up and buggy looking, and they looked like crap. I don't understand why they were sold. They were in that plastic bag all sealed up for like six months. Why buy them? We always put them into our salad growing up, and I would just pick them out. And my mom still buys them. She still buys those bags. To me, those bags of radishes are like the ultimate symbol of industrial produce. They're grown for size and for color, but they taste like balls of wood dipped in nail polish remover. I don't understand why people would eat them. So I never understood the appeal of the radish until... Want to hear more? Tune in live to Why We Cook every Tuesday at 6.30 p.m., where you can find all the old shows on our archives. Also, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes. Thanks for listening. The following is a message from HeritageFoodsUSA.com. The difference between wild Alaskan salmon and farmed Atlantic salmon is just as great as the differences between commodity pork and heritage breed pork. Huge! HeritageFoodsUSA.com is lining up a major social buy of sustainably harvested salmon in July and offering it at a phenomenal price to consumers. Check out HeritageFoodsUSA.com for more details on how to get in on this opportunity. Experience salmon the way it should be. following is a public service announcement from Just Food. Help bring live chickens into food challenge communities through your donations to the Just Food City Chicken Project 2011. The City Chicken Project would not be possible without the volunteer hours, donations large and small, and the vibrant energy and ideas of the communities we work with. Just Food is a nonprofit organization that connects New York City communities and local and urban farmers with the resources and support they need to make fresh, locally grown food accessible to all. To donate, search on kickstarter.com for Just Food and find their City Chicken Project. For more information on Just Food, visit JustFood.org or call 212-645-9880. That's 212-645-9880. Let's keep making New York City a better place to live and eat.